0: The Shit You Love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. This week in the web series, we return to a familiar theme you're only as good as your fans. The Remember Nostalgia movement has been hijacked by a bunch of jockheads whose lives are dedicated to preserving things the way they used to be, because the way they used to be was pretty damn good for them. When I walked the dog past the bowling green-like lushness of the grounds at Xavier College, Burke Hall, I sometimes wonder what it would be like if you went to this school from kinder age, You had all this sumptuous beauty surrounding you as an accepted part of your everyday life, and then I'm assuming you went home each night to one of those fabulous houses in the nearby suburbs. If this was the bread and butter of your existence, wouldn't the rest of your life be one long inexorable letdown? Not everyone gets to earn gazillions – And for those kids from privileged backgrounds who ended up in normal, moderately remunerated jobs like the vast majority of people, living in suburbs that aren't necessarily fabulous, tightening the belt to get by, struggling to afford to send their kids to posh schools, well, you could forgive them for thinking their school years were the best years of their lives. Now, of course, dear listener, you may have cause to disagree. You may have enjoyed the benefits of a posh school and gone on to find great enrichment in your life, despite not living in a mansion. I am slapping on this generalisation with a thick trowel, and by now you may have noticed I have a serious chip on my shoulder about private schools, about the haves and have-nots in general. This, coming from someone who in the great book of categorisation qualifies as an entitled middle-aged white male an anointed member of the patriarchy, a fucking baby boomer no less, is, well, well it is a bit rich, isn't it? So yep, I acknowledge and I'm truly grateful for the incredible fortune of my existence. But what's a bloke like me to do with all this activity in his brain? Where to channel this useless energy? Well, it's handy to have a cause And my cause has always been, in my own pathetic little way, kicking against the pricks. Largely fabricated though those pricks may have been, they always seemed real enough to me. And I'm glad I've had this chip on my shoulder because I've managed to turn it into stuff. In some circles it might be called art. Songs, images, jokes, words, and maybe, hopefully, you've had a bit of fun out of it. So, I get shoulder chip therapy and you get something to take your mind off whatever's been bugging you this week. That's the unspoken contract between us. And I guess, for that reason, I've contributed something to this world. The pricks I've kicked against have been numerous. The Treehouse Kids, the theme of recent episodes of this podcast has definitely been one. More on that later. I also find slavish following of fashion, and by fashion I don't mean clothes, it's far bigger than that. That's a constant bindi in my foot. Artifice and deception in the modern world is another. I'm not against the modern world per se. With progress comes enlightenment. If I think back to the attitudes toward gay people when I was at school, the unquestioning, entrenched racism all of it unconsciously filtering into my opinions at the time, as much as I would have claimed otherwise. Shit, you'll even spot it in some lyrics of that former band of mine. Well, it just proves conclusively that things weren't better in the old days. So let's get my position on that one cleared up for starters. But people through the ages have never stopped being fuckwits. And the modern world enables fuckwitism in so many breathtakingly new ways. All of the above continually inspire my ire and get me off my couch and up at the old notebook. And my theory here is that I developed a taste for this in my formative years when I was constantly reminded of where I fit in the have-and-have-nots of my own, very small microcosm of society. Sorry, listener, I'm trying to tie this all together with a very thin bit of twine. Please humour me. For better or worse, justifiably or otherwise, as I was growing up, I perceived myself to be a have-not when it came to certain things. Coolness, good looks, those suburbs that clearly weren't Springvale parents that weren't so strict, schools where they had girls, the password to the treehouse. And as my musical career stumbled from one small disaster to the next, none of them heroic or romantic or even vaguely momentous, just whimpers instead of bangs, I sensed that my musical ambitions were doomed too because, somehow or other, me and my bandmates were never going to make it. No matter how talented, thoughtful, hard-working we might aspire to be, we were in the have-nots category. From that first night, sitting in the kitchen, eating the Wheat Bix of Resignation after the Noble Park Youth Club disaster, right through to the crawl towards extinction of I Can Run, I was increasingly aware of the voice telling me, maybe your musical ambition has always been bullshit. The terrible four letters Q-U-I-T hadn't quite formed on my lips yet, but they were close, dear listener, really close. Time for one last desperate fling, or so I thought. Even though I Can Run had slowed to a crawl, like the poor embattled nicotine addict huddling in the rain next to a smoking back alley bin, I kept putting myself out there. Still chasing the password to that treehouse. At one stage, I felt I was getting closer. I'd been following a Melbourne band, which I mentioned in a previous episode, called Serious Young Insects, who sounded a bit like two of my favourite bands, XTC and The Jam. And I actually got to know the band members, which was pretty cool because they were played on Triple R. Drummer Mark White lived with his sister Debbie in a spacious bungalow, complete with home recording setup. It wasn't really closer to the treehouse password, but at the time I felt it was. And the hilarious in hindsight truth is that my future was on a little signpost pointing in the opposite direction to that treehouse. Who knows what motivated him to do it, but my friend scratched some words on a few bits of paper and put him in a green folder a bunch of short lyrics to songs that didn't exist. They were very silly, and therefore great, because that's what we were like. We weren't sitting around with pine head haircuts swigging from bottles of cheap port and calling each other man. We were pretty much all the time silly. The contrast between what I was really like and the kind of performing artist I was aspiring to be couldn't be greater, but I didn't see it. Purely for fun, we made a tape. Only a few of us. We made up songs on the spot to those lyrics. And I sang. This was great fun, so we kept doing it. But it had absolutely nothing to do with my serious pursuit of rock glory. These were two separate universes. I even started writing my own songs. And because Mark White had a home recording set up in his bungalow, I headed over there to record a few of my songs with help from Mark, his sister Debbie and her boyfriend Mark. These were not particularly listenable. But who fucking cared? One of the songs I wrote was called What Nationality is Les Murray? There's Murray Where for is ancestry and does he call the mother country when it's all home through OTC another was I'm allergic to breathing. I've gone to the dogs. Your band is rising, the industry's buzzing. You're going to be the next big thing. You want me to join on a million a week. And a thousand girls swooning at every word I sing. If I don't join now, the band will split. But you can go to buggery because I've gone to the dogs. The Melon Genie with the light brown hair. Oh, when you got out of bed today, you said, thank you, Lord, for the such Man. Well, the daisies are golden, the grass is green, nature glistens in a dewdrop gleam, it's a work of art, there can be no doubt, but it'll all go to buggery, when I get the mower out. Captain Nobody. Watch out criminals, your time is nigh. Fees and murderers, hold okay. your heads up high. Crime doesn't pay, so take your evil ways. Justice will get you, it's got nothing to do with me. Because I'm Captain Nobody, you won't notice when I'm around. Captain Nobody, the least important man in town. Yeah. The Onomatopoeia. Where I'm scratching the sound of Johnny Rotten raspberrying at the end of the song EMI on Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. <laughs> neatly encapsulating my life's mantra, I shit me. Work shits me, play shits me, night shits me and day shits me. One thing shits me, most of all, I shit me. In true I shit me style, I kept these songs to myself. Because, well, this was fun. And fun had nothing to do with being a proper rock star in the 80s. And I was still clinging on to that dream, my fingernails cracked and bleeding. I Can Run was not going to realise that dream. My last chance was to find some band to join. And Mark White was kind enough to help. He told me about a couple of vacant drumming gigs that he'd heard about around the traps. The first was with a guy called Steve Pike who'd won a day's free recording time in a Triple R demo competition. Recording in a real studio, guaranteed Triple R airplay. It all sounded a bit glamorous until I turned up at the first rehearsal. Steve was an English ex-soldier on the seedy side of Handsome, lugging his ambition with the grim resignation of a gumshoe pursuing a dead end. Steve had obviously lost the romance of Rock's great adventure. All he had was his competition-winning song. In six funereal weeks of rehearsals in a dingy Richmond garage, night after night, all we played was that one song which was never quite right in Steve's mind. Like Sting unable to ejaculate after years of tantric sex, we explored every possible angle to no avail. It would have been funny if I'd had anyone to share the joke with. The rest of the band made Steve look like Benny Hill. Looshing their way into rehearsals fashionably late, dazedly humourless, swigging on cheap port and running nicotine-stained fingers through their oily Nick Cave doos, I hated their guts within minutes. The feeling appeared to be mutual. Was this what being in a real band was like? With the mooted recording session only a few days away, I couldn't stand it any more and quit, and was only persuaded to turn up at the studio with the news that Lobby Lloyd... Legend of Oz Rock was going to produce the session. Lobby Lloyd, Legend of Oz Rock, was one of those mythical figures that seemed to exist in a word-of-mouth-only hall of fame. His contributions to the great continuum of Australian rock music were all on long-deleted records. His reputation as a revolutionary guitar player, apparently self-evident. Though to me, it all just sounded like turgid blues jamming. Nevertheless, He'd once led the Coloured Balls, the adopted band of Melbourne's notorious 70s subculture, the Sharpies. I'd spent most of my teenage years crossing the road to avoid Sharpies, so the idea of meeting Lobby Lloyd had a kind of Ballardian car crash appeal. You know, like listening to a Charles Manson album. I should have heard the warning hooter when Steve complained, his default position incidentally, that although Triple R told him it was free recording, he still had to scrounge a couple of hundred bucks to pay Lobby in speed. And Lobby didn't disappoint. Balding on top, long straggly hair down the back, toothless, chain smoking, and vice ravaged, Lobby turned up hours late and proceeded to call everything the cunt. When referring to the kick drum, the cunt needs more bottom end when referring to the song's bridge. The cunt needs more guitars. By the way, just thought I'd break out of this story for a second to mention that one night in a restaurant, many, many, many years later, I was telling this very story to Tony Martin and his partner Serena when a child who'd been sitting with her mother at a nearby table came over and said to us, My mum and I don't like some of the words you're using. Surprisingly, we didn't reply... Tell your mum she's a cunt for making you do her dirty work. Instead, we lowered our voices in abject embarrassment. Anyway, where was I? Ah yes, Lobby. Lobby seemed permanently about to headbutt everyone and everything. Then again, if you were producing a no-prospect band full of the cunt, you probably would be too. Not so much a visionary of sonic daring do he reminded me of the drunks on Disability Pension who used to threaten me every Thursday night in my part-time job at the Sandown Park Greyhound track. Of course, writers of rock history will tell you, One Lobby Lloyd, legend of Oz Rock, is worth a thousand middle-class mummies boys like me. Like Exile on Main Street era Keith pulling a knife at the merest provocation – Excessive, irrational and frankly childish behaviour is to be celebrated in the true artiste. I'm not sure what the lob thought of me, or even if he knew I existed, but I hung around long enough to record a couple of takes of The Cunt and disappeared. I never heard what happened to Steve, but I knew to cross the road next time Lobby loomed. Another audition was with an experimental combo called Synthetic Dream – who'd been part of the apocryphal Clifton Hill scene. They were really just two very nice, slightly hippie-ish music teachery types who treated music like an interesting culture on a Petri dish. I did two gigs with them where I played whatever drum beats seemed to suit the cyclical drones of their music to almost nobody. At the second one, I drafted in Sean from all my Gone Nowhere bands and told him just to plug in all his guitar effects and make weird noises – I thought we'd get found out, but it actually sounded intentional. We played the second gig at the Tote, supporting a band called Scrap Museum, later to morph into Blue Ruin, contemporaries slash rivals of that famous band of mine in the early years of its existence. Sorry to get all confusing, but I just thought it might appeal to the rock family tree musicologists out there. Also shows that I was closer to the treehouse than I realised. But I didn't realise... And I told the very nice folks in Synthetic Dream that I didn't really share their dream. I figured I could play to nobody any time I liked with my own bands. Why would I do it in someone else's? My final audition was just one foothold from the treehouse and entirely more name-drop worthy. Nick Seymour, later for Giant Fame in Crowded House, at that time bassist with none other than Hugo Race's recently defunct Plays with Marionettes, was getting a new band together. A painter of some underground renown, he had an artist's loft in the old steamship building on King Street in the CBD. I've got an artist's loft in the old steamship building on King Street in the CBD. What a dead-set chick magnet of a sentence that must be, I thought. And there, in my best meticulously unkempt hairdo, I quietly set up my drum kit and played a set of songs with Seymour's crew, Who looked like private school educated versions of Steve Pike's band Not a lot of jokes were cracked I suspected I had on the wrong shirt And really didn't feel like I was going to get a call back At the end of the rehearsal In the vain hope I might turn around this first impression With a glimpse of my refreshing irreverence I played them a tape of I Shit Me One thing shits me most of all I didn't get a call back. Yet again, I returned to my metaphorical bowl of Whitbix to ponder the unponderable. Maybe I should find something else to do with my deepest desire. Maybe I was never going to get that password. Maybe I just wasn't cool enough. What was the secret? What was this intangible essence of cool? Where was the colonel Sanders of cool so I could just threaten him with a lead pipe and get those 11 herbs and spices out of him With the great predictable wisdom of hindsight I now know cool is an untrappable quicksilver apparition it changes before you can define it it's different things to different people and I suspect if you were to trap it you'd find it less flavoursome in the tasting than in the anticipation Pin down cool people and you'd find them way less cool in actuality, driven by the same fears and insecurities as the rest of us. If you, like me, suffer the bitter taste of chip-on-shoulder syndrome, and your first reaction on reading one of those terrible fawning magazine articles about the beautiful, talented, famous Melissa Leong, or the Vogel Award-winning young author Emma Batchelor, or the latest music genius... I'm too scared to even suggest who that might be, lest I betray my complete lack of coolness. If your first reaction is not a very noble reaction, well, here's what I recommend. Imagine them in ten years' time. They'll probably be referred to, if at all, in the press, somewhat patronisingly. They'll be feeling slightly on the shelf. Their work might well be better than it was ten years earlier when they were hot But will any of the rest of us give a shit? How hard is it to resist the urge to like something better when it's hot? It's hard to be sympathetic about what famous people go through when they become no longer quite as famous. But I think it's not such an uncommon ordeal. I compare it to the challenge of ageing. From my lofty perspective of several decades on the planet... I reckon the hardest part of ageing is the period when you're still going to places and doing things and wearing the fashions of young people, but you're the oldest one there. That's the period where you don't know whether to hang on and fight or stop trying altogether. The answer is neither, by the way. It's something altogether different. But it's really hard to find that new comfy spot, which is why you see some people choosing one of the two extremes. The 50-plus woman with weird bucket lips. The bloke with old-face young hair. Or, alternately, that Nana helmet haircut that screams, I've given up. The fear of ageing and the fear of no longer being cool is the subject matter of this week's episode of Only the Bits I Love. Only the Bits I Love. In this week's Tiny Useless Snippet, I pay homage to the lyric of LCD Sound System, a.k.a. James Murphy's, I'm Losing My Edge. I'm Losing My Edge James Murphy was that very rare commodity, the musical artist who became the hottest thing since sliced bread after he'd turned 30. How many times does that happen? James Murphy is the exception that proves the rule – He was already looking a bit less fresh-faced when he hit the big time and, as I mentioned in a previous episode, his subsequent live performance persona was all about highlighting the band's equipment rather than their beauty and coolness and physical star persona as the focus of your attention. Losing My Edge describes the paranoia of younger, cooler people taking your place. If you extrapolate it to any industry or pastime that prides youth over experience, it still works." For all that I admire James's lyric, I'm still not fully convinced that it's as humble as it makes out. He spends most of the lyric name-dropping musical artists most of us have never heard of. In one particularly bullshit-ridden article, probably in Pitchfork, where they put LCD sound system on a completely absurd pedestal, they argue that James shows great compassion and high-groundedness by admitting the new kids are nicer people than he is. You don't reckon Jim's being just a little sarcastic there, do you? I reckon, like that Shakespeare bloke once said, he doth protest too much, methinks. Or whatever it was. I've never been much good at the uh, Shakespearean illusion. And here's me saying, he doth protest too much. I'm having a crack at Murph for being jealous of cool people when it's been the fuel of most of my songs for 30 years. Still, If you were bothered by my hypocrisy, you'd have stopped listening long ago, dear listener. And you haven't, so, well, see you next time. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music... Go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time.